Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to receive your instructions. O oh, Jesus, once despised but now exalted, help us to rightly view your sacrifice for our sin. O oh, Heavenly Father, teach us to trust your will in all things. Amen. In Matthew chapter 4 we read, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The nearness, or better yet, the inbreaking of the reign of heaven was proclaimed in Jesus' preachings, prefigured in parable and evidenced in his miracles. The demons recognized it, even if most of the people did not. Here in chapter 16, Matthew marks the critical turning point in his narrative of Jesus' ministry with identical language. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that it was necessary. What was necessary? In a word, the cross. The cross hinted at in Herod's attempt to kill the infant Jesus, in the Pharisees' decision to destroy him, in the death of John, and in the sign of Jonah. Twice. The cross is now out in the open. It is necessary. Four infinitives form the subject, the antecedent of it. It is necessary to depart into Jerusalem. It is necessary to suffer many things. It is necessary to be killed. It is necessary to be raised. We could answer the question, why? Why was it? Why were all four of these necessary? By simply saying, it was the will of the Father. And that would be true. But let us reflect for a moment this morning on each of these divine necessities in turn. It was necessary to depart into Jerusalem, the city of David. Jesus would come to his own as the greater son of David amid shouts of acclamation. The words of Zechariah the prophet would ring in her gates. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But it was a city that did not know the day of its visitation. By the middle of that same week, Jesus lamented over her, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, and you were not willing. It was necessary that Jesus die outside the gates of Jerusalem. It was a divine necessity because of my sin and because of yours. It was necessary to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Before the turning point of our text, when confronted with opposition, Jesus had chosen to withdraw and defer the moment of final conflict. But now, however, he declares that he must provoke and confront his enemies, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. If we ask why these, we find our answer in the hollowness of their worship. It had been this way for generations. In the days of Amos, Yahweh had declared through his prophet, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. This, despite the fact that worship was booming at Bethel. Attendance was up. But the fear of Yahweh to walk humbly before their God was down. The poor were sold for a sandal and the chaff along with the wheat. 
It was no better at that time in the south, in Jerusalem, where Yahweh declared through the prophet Isaiah, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. So it was in Jesus' day. In the previous chapter, Matthew recorded the confrontation between these same religious leaders and Jesus' disciples regarding the tradition of the elders, the washing of hands. Jesus turns the table on them, declaring, So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Could the same charge be brought against our house? There is no end to the heresies that have crept into the church over two millennia. And we do not have time to rehearse them all this morning. Only let me bring up a few points to ponder regarding the sacraments. First of all, baptism is a sacrament by which we understand a divinely mandated means of grace. There's a lot of Lutheranese in that sentence. Let me unpack it a little bit. It begins with God's command. Do this. It connects a physical object, water, to his word. It delivers the forgiveness of sins, one on the cross by Christ, to the baptized. When decision language creeps in, when we hear about giving myself to Jesus, we know we have left the sacrament and entered the realm of personal piety. What did the prophet Isaiah say? All my righteousness is as filthy rags. How could I ever conceive of bringing these to Jesus? Instead, I gratefully receive what he did what he gives. I stand in his righteousness and not my own. That is my confidence. For the Lord's table, we come as one body to receive his body. For too long we have let the individualism that is the American experiment creep up to the rail as if it's just me and Jesus. If Paul says there shall be no divisions among you, that is, we confess the same thing. We insist upon a unity of faith before we consent to a unity of practice. But let us return to our text. It was necessary to go, to suffer, and then to be killed. There's a singularity to this infinitive. All the others have modifiers attached. Death stands alone. But why death? Why must Jesus be killed? Paul answered that Christ became a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. In his greater commentary on Galatians, Luther expounds on this passage, writing, Thus the whole emphasis is on the phrase, for us. For Christ is innocent, so far as his own person is concerned. Therefore he should not have been hanged from the tree. But because, according to the law, every thief should have been hanged, therefore, according to the law of Moses, Christ himself should have been hanged. For he bore the person of a sinner and a thief. And not of one, but of all sinners and thieves. For we are sinners and thieves. And therefore we are worthy of death and eternal damnation. Close quote. But Jesus stood in our place. Therefore it was necessary to be killed, that you, that I might live. Seven pages later, Luther concludes, By this fortunate exchange with us, he took upon himself our sinful person and granted us his innocent and victorious person. Clothed and dressed in this, we are freed from the curse of the law because Christ himself voluntarily became a curse for us. Declaring, you are free. Let's 
sort of Luther's argumentation in those intervening pages concerned the role of reason in our ability, or better yet, our inability to grasp the divine necessity of Jesus' death. If we could step ahead in our text, we will see this inability in Peter's response. Far be it from you, Lord! This shall never happen to you. The original Greek is actually a, a rather unusual idiom whose exact meaning is still debated. And however we translate it, there are at least two points that we should take away from Peter's exclamation. First, while the range of messianic expectations may have been quite broad during the intertestamental period, there appears to have been no room for a suffering and a dying Messiah. Historically speaking, for Peter and for virtually everyone else in Israel, Messiah and suffering and dying do not go together. The second point is theological. Peter, recoiling in horror, arises out of the natural way that sinful human beings think about God. If God really is God, he would not choose to work this way in the world. Gibb speaks for Peter and for all of us when he writes, If Jesus is God's Christ, then let there be an end to the defeatist talk about suffering and death. God's way in the world and his reign as king should obviously entail what looks like success. Should they not? God's will says otherwise. It was necessary that Jesus be killed, just as assuredly as it was necessary that he on the third day be raised. Today is Sunday. We celebrate again the resurrection. We celebrate the love of the Father who would not let your Holy One see corruption, Psalm 16, but raised him from the dead loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it, to quote Peter from his Pentecost sermon. Today we celebrate the love of the Son who declared, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, whose resurrection declares, you are redeemed. Today we celebrate the love of the Holy Spirit, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, through the waters of baptism, the Spirit has sealed you for glory, testifying, you are mine. Four divine necessities. To depart to Jerusalem, to suffer, to be killed, and to be raised. These four necessities give way to three mandates in the second half of our text. Then Jesus told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Three mandates, three imperatives that define the shape of the Christian life. Let him deny himself. There's likely no end to the specific applications of this mandate. The flesh still hangs around our neck, as Luther put it. I cannot tell you what form it will take in your life. You alone can investigate your heart and know the order, the necessary reordering of priorities. It means saying no to some of them means reconsidering the things that you like, the things you like to do, and saying no to some of them. I realize this sounds very un-American, that here in the land of opportunity, we must draw a line through some of those opportunities. They simply are not open to me as a redeemed child of God. Let him take up his cross. Here again, our American context stands in our way. While we, the church, have fallen from the position we once held, a place of great prominence and privilege, we have yet to feel the physical pain, persecution, 
I have nothing to say about crosses to my sisters and brothers in China or in Turkey or in Iran. But I can tell you this about Jesus' mandate. Sometimes following Jesus will make your life harder. Sometimes a lot harder. This too is the will of God. Let him follow me. Interestingly, this is the only one of the three imperatives in the present tense. We could nuance the translation this way. If anyone would come after me, let him continue to follow me. Following Jesus means he's in charge. John Orkberg illustrates this with a metaphor. He writes, a lot of people find Jesus to hand have a lot of people find Jesus handy to have in a car as long as he's in the ride-along seat. We would call it the passenger seat, but Oakburg really is his background. Because he's handy because sometimes we may come up with where we require his services. Jesus, I have a health problem. I need your help. I want you in the car, but I'm not so sure I want you driving. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my life anymore. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't get to gossip, flatter, cajole, deceive, rage, intimidate, manipulate, exaggerate. I get out of the driver's seat and hand the keys over to him. It's his life. He bought it at a very high cost. It was necessary. It was God's will that he depart to Jerusalem to suffer, to be killed, and to be raised. And because he did, I would deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. Jesus fulfilled the will of the Father that we might be saved and live as his own. Amen. Now may the peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.